Today, I have the incredible blessing of getting to share a conversation I had with my friend Jedediah Jenkins. I interviewed Jedediah for my conference a little bit ago, and it was such a beautiful conversation. I wanted to make sure that you guys got to hear it as well. We talk about what it was like for both of us to grow up in deeply religious homes, as well as how that felt for him as a queer man to come out and to come to grips with the faith that he was raised in and the person he knows himself to be. It's a beautiful conversation about courage and how to be yourself. And also, he's really funny, and I'm sort of hoping that he'll be my real-life new best friend. This is my conversation with Jedediah Jenkins. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast, I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. First of all, I'm so, I'm so thrilled to be able to sit down with you. You're someone who I have followed and admired for a really long time. And I know that your work has been really profound in a lot of my friends' lives. And so you're a part of conversations that we've had. And so I just feel really tickled to be able to talk to you today. I feel the same way. It's been, I feel like we're both writers and like everywhere I see my book, your books are next to it. And I'm like, right. we're friends <laughs> right. in the printed world. Our books are friends. They hang out. I've seen them hang I, out. They totally do. Yes. And now it's our yeah. turn. So that's, I love it. Yeah. I always just feel like sort of these things evolve and happen exactly when they're meant to, like the universe lines it up perfectly. So I feel like there's a reason we're sitting down right now. I'd love to just hear like, where are you at in the world? What's happening in your life? What is, what is, it look like for you as you go into the rest of 2021? I, so I had a book come out this February, uh, my second okay. book, and there was celebration. And then there was also mourning because I am a true double extrovert. I get my energy by being around people and I get my thoughts by talking to other people. And so not being able to do a book tour of any real, like not being able to see people and like engage with them and hug them was really a thing I had to mourn and understand that like, if that's my biggest problem of this pandemic, I'm doing pretty good. And, yeah. and I'm so lucky that I live in a world where, because think about it, if you were a writer at any other time, you could only know that anyone was reading your books if you went to a signing because the right. social media didn't exist. Maybe you would get fan mail or something, but it was such a private experience. Whereas you and I get the blessing of if someone is touched by our words or what we're doing, they can tell you, a stranger in Bosnia can tell you right now that they are right. responding to it. So that I've had such a wonderful year, you know, processing, engaging, and just like seeing people read my words. And it's, that's like the greatest feeling in the world when they care. 
And now I've ridden that wave and now it's time I'm about to start in earnest on book number three. And so I'm getting that together. So yeah, I've like, I've kind of had this like summer of double vaxxed. I can have dinner parties with my friends again, slash, okay, party's <laughs> over, time to get back to work. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me, so much of the writing that you do is deeply personal. You are sharing life experience and what you know and what your truth is. And a lot of the people who will watch this or listen to it later, later in podcasts have this dream to use their voice or to write down the words or to start the podcast or to start putting their story out into the world. What was that journey like for you from sort of concept to, I am actually going to start really, truly putting this out there. Um, I, I would say it was very, very gradual. I would think when I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, love that city, love that place. In a, in a very churched world. I went to church three times a week. There are more churches on my street than there are houses. So I grew up with this, you know, very intense, beautiful, structured, religious life. And, you know, I started to realize that something was different about me in third grade. And then I realized it was called gay in seventh grade. And I thought it would go away. And I thought it would go away and all these things. And so when you wake up into your life as a problem, I like I started to realize something deep in me is a problem. It made me a student of my life. I was I I became became very interested in why is the world not made for me? And like why am I in mm. trouble by existing? This is a problem. And I think that in that there's a reason why so many queer people and minority communities or whatever become artists because when the world isn't made for you you start to like create your own world, whether that's through writing or music or whatever, because you're trying to find safety and make the world make sense. So I think that's what turned me into a writer or at least a processor of ideas was just, I need to, I need to figure out what's going on with my life and what is this thing about being alive. And I became a voracious reader trying to find someone to help me because my community and pastors showed me one view of the world but it didn't feel like the complete picture. So I had to go find it at Barnes and Noble. So I was at Barnes and Noble a lot. And then I think it just became through as an extrovert, through conversation, through finding friends and community that I could speak my doubts and my questions openly and honestly. And then I can come out of the closet to them and I can do these things. Processing the ideas became very important to me. Right around that time, Facebook was blowing up and Blogspot and Tumblr. And so, you know, people had blogs, you know, all the things. And so I was like, I just want to like write a blog, but I'm not, I don't even have an audience. I'm just going to write it to like, it actually feels helpful to put things into words for myself. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I remember I wrote some essay on my blog and then I posted it on my Facebook, just like thoughts about whatever, God and the church or something. And a lot of people responded to it, positive and negative. I got like, this is dangerous, you know, blah, 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 on my Facebook. And I, I'll never forget a guy in Denver who I had met once, like three years in the past, I barely knew him, messaged me and said, what you said in your blog changed my mind about, like it rewired my brain. Thank you so much for writing that. And 
that moment of affirmation from somebody who's not my friend doesn't need to encourage me for no reason. You know, like when your best girlfriend is like, yay, oh my God, I'm so proud of you for starting that. Well, they have to say that, you know? So right. it's when it's, if you make something and then someone that has no skin in the game, they just like the thing you make tells you that you're onto something. And so that was really impactful for me. And that kept happening. And so that encouraged me to write more and put it out there a little more. And then it just snowballed. It was the like, I always talk about, yes, do what you love, but listen to what loves you back and, mm. and move in that tango towards it. And so that's so good. Yeah. So that's what I did. Yeah. I, I love this too, because I think the more that social media continues to grow and the more that we see that as the example of what we're all supposed to be aspiring to, the less opportunity there is for creatives to test the waters and put things out there and sort of get that feedback. And I do think that there was such magic in, in my own career, how long it took for that for any of it to come to fruition, like over a decade <laughs> yeah. of writing in obscurity and writing for the love of it. Mm. Like really, like if I had one person say anything, I was like, holy crap, <laughs> this is amazing. So I do feel like that's this piece that is starting to fall away from the process is that people think, man, I'm supposed to put this out there into the world. And then immediately yes. it's either going to work or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it means, it means that I suck yes. or it means that it wasn't for me. And really it's like, no, this is an evolution. And I think that for any artist, musician, um, whatever like medium that you work inside of, the whole point is the evolution uh, and the evolution never stops. Have you ever heard that interview? It's old with Ira Glass, host of This American Life, where he talks about, he, ta he talks about that exact thing, the myth of arriving as an expert. And like Ira Glass basically invented modern podcasting and his voice is so iconic right. and he's such a good storyteller. And he goes and he plays, I'm going to find this and send it to you. He, he plays, yeah. or you can search it on YouTube. I think it's um, Ira Glass on creativity and it's an old like 90s looking video. And he says that it, people think he showed up as an expert and then he goes and plays his NPR stories from like 10 years before when he was like in his early 20s. And it is atrocious. Like it is, and, and he <laughs> says that. And it's like it, the Ira Glass that you know doesn't sound anything like the Ira Glass that he was. And he did radio for 10 years before he figured out that you don't have to speak with affectation when you're doing a radio show, just talk like you talk. And it took him a really long time to find that. And now he's built this iconic career that seems like he showed up on top, but he really didn't. And that right. is such an incredible, right. I mean, I started life as a lawyer thing. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. And then I worked at really, yeah. And then I worked at the charity Invisible Children and then helping make documentaries. And it was in there that I started as a lawyer for the charity. And then in the meetings for the documentaries and for the campaigns, they would bring me in to help ideate and articulate what they wanted to say. And then I would like say what I thought it should be. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Write that down. Write what Jed said down. That's good. That's good. To the point where it became just Jed, you write it. Jed, you write the thing. And then it was like, okay, Jed, we need you to hire a different lawyer and you're just going to be our writer because we like the way <laughs> you say it. So it wasn't that I knew I was going to be a writer. It was that the like 
it was encouraged and pulled out of me through observation. And that was then in my twenties, I got enough affirmation in that and affirmation of my soul doing it felt so true and good that I decided, okay, well, I'm in this nonprofit world. I could, I'm about to be 30. I could blink and like all of a sudden I'm going to be 50, 60. Maybe I'm going to have kids. Maybe I can have a mortgage and I'm not going to be able to take these big risks. Like I think I can that now, now I've learned you can always do that, but it felt like my time was running out to take big risks. So I said, when I, I remember I was 27 or 28 and I said, okay, guys, this is, I'm giving you my three years notice. I'm going to quit when I'm 30. And they were like, three years notice. I don't know what that means. And I was just like, I, I want to try to be a writer. I want to write a book. And so when I turn 30, I'm going to try it, like write a book. And I'm going to spend a couple years trying to be a full-time writer. And if it fails, okay, well, at least when I'm 60, I won't be like, what if I tried? It's like, at least I know I tried. And then I'll be like, wow, I'm really not good. So that's what I did. But it was like, really, it took me my whole 20s to uncover that I might have that talent. Well, and it sort of sounds like what you described earlier, this idea of like, do what you love, but also pay attention to what loves you back. Like that it's sort of pulling you in this direction and you follow. I heard this years ago at a business conference, the woman who founded Minted said this line that I have quoted a thousand times since, which was follow the signs of life. Mm. She was talking about business that like in business, we have this idea of what we want to build and what we want to put out into the world, but that the audience will tell you, they will respond to a certain piece of it. Mm. And oftentimes I think that when we're writers or creators, we hear what the audience is asking for. And we're like that, like, that's the thing you <laughs> want to know. The Either it seems too simple to us because it's so, you know, it's so second nature. We don't right. think that or it's something so we can teach or right. Or we think, who are we? Mm. Who are we to take on this topic? Like, who am I to, to have this huge conversation? And so we sort of back away from the thing that I feel like we're actually being pulled toward. Mm. And I mean, it reminds me of so much of what you've done because it is a big thing to take on. How do you hold space for the faith that you were born inside of? the evangelical church and how it exists today and also what it means to be queer in America right now. Mm. Like how do you have moments or did you have moments of thinking, who am I? Or like, how do you combat that? Or do you just sort of keep following like one foot in front of the other? I would say I definitely, even to this day, feel like, who am I? And the way that I like get around that is... I, I don't know who I am on a stage in front of thousands because I don't know those people. I mean, all humans are beautiful and lovely and I would hug them all, but like the, I can't, my brain can't process the meaning of that many faces, but I can remember being a 22 year old queer kid and wishing I could find someone to say, you're going to be okay. in in a way that I could hear it, people were saying mm -hmm. it, but I couldn't hear it. And so right. I write books. I use social media. I do everything I do to talk to that book. Cause I know he exists like yes. that 22, that 25, that 30 year old boy, girl, they, whoever is looking for somebody to say, you're not alone. You're not the first person to be here and you're going to be okay. And not only that, you're going to thrive and soar. And so all I'm doing is talking to that kid. 
And so when other people eavesdrop and they get something from it, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. This is so dope. Welcome. But I'm not worried about the world changing or this. I, I can't, that's too big for me. I can't too process big. it. So if it happens as like tangential bonus, fabulous. But I'm over here just trying to like talk to my younger self. I freaking love this. And I feel like this is so powerful. I was just having a conversation. Do you know Becca Stevens from Thistle Farms? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I personally, but yes. Yeah. I got to interview her the other day and she was so incredible. Just like her story is amazing. One of those people who's just built this wildly beautiful, intentional business mm. and just sort of doesn't even realize what a big deal is. So if you ever have a chance to connect with them, like you absolutely should. But this idea of like sort of just working for the one, because she said, you know, people get excited about wanting to help or they want to have impact or they want to tell their story. They want to do good in the world. But then when they start to think about it, they get so overwhelmed by all of it and they think that they have to solve all of it. Like she kept saying, you know, we feel like we have to go upriver. Like we can't just, you know, that old, there's that Desmond Tutu quote that says, you know, at some point you have to stop pulling people yeah. out of the river and you have to go upriver and find out who's throwing them yeah. in. Um, she said, people are so focused on doing the work upriver that we forget how powerful it is to just focus on the one. Mm. And I think that it, it's a beautiful idea for those who are starting out. And also I love that you say it because I'm the same. Mm -hmm. Every single time I step on a stage, every single time I prepare for a conference, every single time I'm working on a podcast or writing a book, my intention is always, God, give me one. Mm -hmm. Give me one person who needed to hear it. Like, let me just work for this one person. And what a beautiful gift that it affects more than just one. Mm. But I think that's so powerful for anyone listening. This idea that we should be working for the one you know, whether it's your younger self, your sister, your mom, the person that you couldn't save, but you wanted to, that you're just sort of creating the, that content for them. Gosh, I love that idea. There's, well, there's science behind it. And so like, have you ever heard of the term Dunbar's number, like 150? Do you know this number? So, uh -uh, no. So basically humans evolved in small family, like groups. And what they've done is they've tracked like bones and like ancestral homo sapiens and found that we really developed to live in tribes of, of maximum 150. And so, and that was for like millions of years. So us developing complex, large cities and whole nations, I mean, that's only 10,000 years old. So when you think about how long we've been anatomically human, it's a blip of what we're doing now is a blip, which is why certain things seem to fry us like social media, like certain things we like, we didn't really evolve for this. So it's kind of like short circuiting us a little bit, but anyway, Dunbar's number is 150. And so you'll see like a small business. When you start a small business, you can get about 150 employees. And then once you get above that, you have to have an HR department because now you, you can't process the complex human interactions between each employee once you get over that number, it's too big for your brain. So you have to like systematize. And that mm. works like in your social life. If you think you probably know 150 people, like, and that's a lot, but in terms of cousins, friends, wives of this and that and kids, and like, you don't really know more than that. And there's some savants who might know 300. And then there's some like introverts who might know 50, but like, 
that we can't really process more human relationships than that. Our brains just don't have the space for it. And we evolved to be that way. So if you are trying to shake the world and impact thousands, your brain doesn't even know what that means. A mentor of mine calls that, he says it's a specifically millennial problem is the idolatry of magnitude. We, we want magnitude. That is a good line. The idolatry of magnitude. And it, Holy and it's, crap, and it's just good. untrue to like, we can't feel it. And I live in Los Angeles. I'm surrounded by actors and singers and celebrities. And the most, it's fascinating, the most uniform wisdom that a famous person will tell you is that once you get to the top, it is lonely and it doesn't feel like you thought it would. And like, you will win the Emmy, you will win the Grammy and like people aren't calling you. And you're like, the pe- I'll, I'll never forget a friend of mine, he won a bunch of Emmys and the only people that congratulated him were his team because all of his community thought that he was so busy being on top that he didn't have time to take their call. So he was just like alone and I'll, I just like, I think about that all the time. So all that to say, when, I, when I'm talking to someone who wants to write a book or wants to do something, I'm like, truly, truly try to speak to a small group and try like 150 people. If you get 150 people caring, you will never be able to feel more than that. And so if the if you get big numbers or whatever, that's so amazing. And like, if you can communicate with 150, chances are, you're doing something of value so it'll naturally spread or you can like go for that. But keep in your mind that group of people because we evolved to be that way. And that really helps me because I, you know, if you, if I go to a book signing and the bookstore can hold a hundred people, that's a big group. Oh my gosh. And then if I'm going to meet them after they're going to and sign books and like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. I'm a corpse at the end of that. And I'm an extrovert. It's just that much energy exchange. So anything above that, if there's 10,000 people in the room, okay, amazing. But that just becomes a concept at that point. We're having this conversation. You're about to start writing the third book. And I have to assume that as much as there was curiosity here and you were sort of trying to figure out how to tell these stories, I still, as someone who also grew up in the evangelical church, pastor's daughter, pastor's Mm -hmm. granddaughter, Mm. the things that you are sharing is so right and true and from a place of love, which is the only God and source that I am familiar with Mm -hmm. is one that is completely love, Mm. but is not the way that I was raised. Mm -hmm. And so I, because the audience is a mix. So sometimes I'll tell these stories about, you know, my best friends coming out and, you know, while we all were at the same church and falling in love with each other and the awful reaction of the church. And I have friends who didn't grow up in the Christian faith who can't process what I'm saying. So it was a, it was a, it, your work is courageous. It has had to have taken courage to say the things that you said or speak your truths in a world where there are people who will oppose them just because that's their nature. So can you talk a little bit about what that process has felt like for you and how you lean into it. Yes. What I will say one thing that changed my life and it is simply the power of language to reframe everything. And this is what one of your superpowers and your ultimate gift is you are such a reframer that helps people 
thrive. And I'll never forget, this was like not something someone told me. It was just, I thought that probably a gift from God that washed over my mind. I remember I was gay. I was living in California. I was tortured. I was falling in love with my straight best friends. I was wondering when this is going to go away. I went to Exodus International. I tried to like deprogram my homosexuality. I tried to pray it away. And I remember just this thought changed everything, which was, wow, you're actually not afraid of God. God made you this way. God made you exactly as you are. You are afraid of rejection of the people in God's house. You are afraid of losing your community. You're afraid of exile and you're not afraid of God. And all of a sudden, once that like clarity, cause I thought I feared God. I thought I was made in a way that made me susceptible to going against God's truth. And I had to fight this battle. And, it, and I really like, I was like, I'm not afraid of God. I think there is nothing in me that feels shame about my identity. There's nothing in me that feels shame about loving who I want to love and who loves me back. What I fear is this community of people telling me that I will be kicked out. And just that reframe changed my fear of myself. And then it really became the journey of as I became more comfortable in myself and really the universe started to deliver me a community of affirmation. I had friends who grew up in the church with me. It was very cosmic. Right as I'm starting to realize, wow, I actually just fear rejection. Some of my most Christian intense friends sat me down and were like, Jed, I just want you to know, like, if you want to date a man and marry a man, I think that's okay. I actually think it's beautiful. Like the people that I thought would be the last on that list. And I remember being so shocked by that. And then just like, starting to have friends of different faiths and friends of no faith and like really building a community where if my church community rejected me, well, I, I had a community that made me feel very alive and very loved that, that accepted me in my wholeness. And so it was almost like sand going from the top to the bottom in an hourglass. Like all of a sudden one day, the bottom of the hourglass was more full than the top. And I was like, mm. I was like, Oh wow. So if these, close-minded churchy people who say they know God, but I don't feel that reject me. Well, I have all these other people who love me unconditionally. And it was, it was just this sense of like power. I mean, humans are a social ape. We are meant to belong. We, we, we have to, once we've had food and shelter taken care of our second need in Maslow's hierarchy of needs is belonging. That is literally the next thing we need. And if you don't have it, it will drive you mad looking for it. And I realized I did belong in my wholeness. And it was that in that moment where that equation had shifted towards, I felt safe in a community that I felt strong enough to start speaking about it and, and being courageous. So it wasn't courage alone, you know, in the face of exile, it was, I had built, you know, I had been given and built a community just big enough to where if I lost everything else, I wouldn't be alone. And that gave me the strength to then talk to the people on the other side, risking it. And then what was so amazing is, sure, a couple people were not down, but then the vast majority were. Like my experience, and this is like, I was really coming out in the early 2000s. My experience was so many of my straight Christian friends didn't know any gay people. And so their experience with me was their only experience. 
And so it, they could watch like a gay pride parade in San Francisco, you know, and the church people could be like, oh, they're so crazy with their leather straps and their dildos. And then they'd be like, <laughs> they'd be like, yeah, but Jed's gay and he doesn't, he's not like that. So not all gay people are the same. And that little like embodying something different for them changed their whole worldview. And that, yeah. that gave me the confidence to just continually step closer and closer to integrity and embodiment of my true self. The two things you said in there that I want to call out, the first gave me chills because the, my story and like the profound, like changing before and after moment in my adult life is a moment where I, all of a sudden, same thing I would say, like washed over me, like something divine. I thought, oh, what if God made me this way? Mm. I had carried so much shame about, and this seems, saying these words seem almost silly, but at the time it was crippling to me, the idea that I wanted to have a business and I wanted to write books and have a podcast. And, but everybody that I knew, and that was speaking into my life, believed that moms are supposed to stay at home Mm. and take care of their kids. Mm. And so I carried shame and I would work on these projects and these dreams for myself, you know, in the morning at like a four o'clock in the morning before anybody woke up so that nobody would see me having these dreams. And, um, I just, I held so much tension in the space for years. And I, I had that moment. I can remember it like yesterday Mm. of thinking, it felt like that. Like I, I took a breath. Oh what if God made me this way? Mm. What if I'm on purpose? Mm. What if it's not an accident or what if it's not wrong? And so when you said that, I was like, yes. And I think that that's such an important takeaway for anybody to, I think we're all on purpose. I think we're all made in this exact, unique, weird, wonderful, like you're supposed to be different. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. And if you can start with that piece, it is the most empowering truth that you can hold on to in your life. And then the second thing you said that I think is so key is needing to have a community around you, whatever it is that you want to lean into, that you want to grow into, even if it's one person, even if it's just the accounts that you follow on social media Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that sort of represent the lifestyle or or the sort of friends that you wish that you had Mm. so that you have someone speaking into your life that aligns with the vibration that you're at now not the person you used to be or not the person your mama wants you to be, your partner wants you to be, but like who you know in your heart, who you want to step into has to have some support in however that shows up for you. I remember my biggest fear when I like went off to college because I loved high school, even though I like had these like Christian traumas and being gay and this and that. Like I also am like a Pollyanna, like Halo, like I just love life. (laughs) And like I'll dance my way into hell. And so <laughs> like, that's just how oh my I am. Gosh. But um, I remember my biggest fear would be to go to college, do whatever, and ha- come back and have my friends say, whoa, you've changed. Like that was my biggest fear. Whoa, you've changed. Where now at 38, if I, if I hadn't changed, I'd be like, bitch, of course I've changed. What do you think I'm doing? <laughs> I'm not made of marble. Like what? Hello, I get new information and I adjust dumbass. So that is like, if someone says you've changed, I'm like, yes, isn't that amazing? I'm learning. I'm growing. So good. (laughs) 
as you uh, no, I love it because I do think that that is, is such a fear for so many people, especially I think women, a lot of women carry that fear of like their mother-in-law saying like, man, you really changed mm. or you're not showing up in the mm. same way that you used to. And I always think the only answer to you've changed is thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Oh my gosh. I'm trying my best. Like that's what the work is, is to evolve and become someone new. Mm. And I think part of that evolution too, is, um, a forgiveness of self of the years you didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's a lot of, when I think we sort of become, we're becoming a new version of ourselves or we're evolving to the next place that we can carry a lot of shame about what was Mm. about like, man, I should have figured this out sooner. or I should have known better. Or I should have, or I lost so much time because I didn't understand these things, but I think it all lines up exactly as it's meant to, when it's meant to, when you're ready to receive the information and sort of take it to the next place. And so there's, um, I hope for listeners, like, a piece in you are experiencing this conversation right now for a reason. I believe that whether it's to plant a seed that won't come to fruition for three years or whether it was exactly what you needed to hear today. Mm. I think that there has to be a grace for ourselves in the entire process, Mm. because only if you're graceful with what has been, are you willing to accept the idea that it will continue to change and grow into something more beautiful. There's this amazing retreat center therapy place in Nashville called Onsite. And I went there a couple of times and one of the things that the therapist there, because it's all about childhood trauma or trauma in general and and basically recovery. And and one of the things that they say about childhood trauma is it's not about the rip, it's about the repair. And what that is, is like, it's not even that your mom left you or forgot you at the grocery store. It's that she didn't come back. It's not about the thing that happened. It's about that forgiveness wasn't asked, that love, that the hug, the embrace didn't follow it because things will be scary all the time. And then it's about the nurturing response to the scary, to the trauma. And when, and when that is lacking, our baby bird little self goes into self-protection mode. And so I always think about in the past, the thing, like the bad ideas that I had, the foolishness the whatever, it's like now I am in, like I'm repairing it myself. I'm saying, oh my God, you were so scared of being rejected. You were so scared of being alone. Like that is so sweet and I love you and you're not alone and I'm right here. And that like nurturing myself from the future is so cool. And we all have that opportunity. Yes. I mean, I, I've done so much work in the last year and a half on childhood, like identifying myself at different ages and mm. what that looks like. And one of the most powerful tools, and it it sounds a little woo-woo if you <laughs> haven't ever done the work, is that your subconscious doesn't know the difference between what actually happened and what you've just imagined. It's why we can have an anxiety attack thinking about a possibility, like you're having a physical response to a made up thing. So by the same token, if you think through the lens of, you know, myself at six years old and trauma that I went through at six years old, the most healing gift you can give yourself is to, to reimagine. So like my therapist said, Rachel, I want you to imagine you're with your six-year-old self in the same way that you would be with your daughter what would you do? What would you want to do for your daughter? Would you want to hug her? Would you want to brush her hair? Would you want to make her feel the love that you didn't have at that age? Just imagine that. 
just, just envision, do some visualizations and just think through, or what, Hey, what did your 13 year old self need in this situation? Or, you know, I went through a divorce last year and for the first time in my adult life, truly Jed, cause I met my ex-husband when I was a baby. Um, I was dating as an adult, like for the first time in my life. And I had no idea how to do it. And like, I grew up in the church, very strict, like you can use your imagination. Yeah. So I was new at all the things. And oh my God. I, I wish I want to hang I out know. with you so I'm, bad. Really? Right. Okay. Like I'm fine. It's a, we can talk about all this stuff, <laughs> but I, I found all this stuff, all this nervousness and all this anxiety coming up. And I could identify it as like my teenage self, Mm -hmm. like sort of that time where I was coming into my sexuality and what did this mean? But also the church tells me that this is sinful and evil and wrong. And how do I process all of these things? And so doing that work to understand how to, like you said, love yourself Mm -hmm. and give yourself that thing that you need in order to repair is how we heal the the current version of us mm. by sort of loving on those wounds in the past. Oh. So I love that you share that. It's so, so and it w- like unpacking because I, I write about this in my new book a lot because it's like unpacking the the invisible strings that are puppeting our lives. Because if you don't interrogate what your real motivations are, your real why, a childhood wound, a thing someone said to you in eighth grade, you don't realize that that is at the driver's seat of your life. Uh, I remember having a deep conversation with one of my uncles and he's very successful and he makes gobs of money. And he, we were talking and he goes, you know, if I really think about it, I was so picked on for being short in middle school and high school. I remember being a kid in the halls and thinking, I'm going to make more money than all of you jerks. And I'm going to show you like how cool I am. And now he's like Mm -hmm. 60 years old and works himself to the bone and lives in a mansion. And he's like, oh my God, I did it. And what did I do? I'm really just trying to show Johnny High School that I'm better than him. Literally from 45 years ago. It's just like an amazing, I mean, and so one thing, like I had my first kiss at 28 first time I had sex, I was 30. Like I was so obsessed with being a good boy that like, I was just, so I'm 38, but I feel romantically around, around age 24. Yeah. And one of the things that happened to me was because my sexuality was dormant and repressed, I developed every other thing. So I am the most socially confident. I can walk into the Obama's kitchen having never met them and just be like oh my god what's are we making an aperol spritz like i fear no man i fear nothing i am so social i'm so confident i love my work i can't believe but if i am on a date or i'm and and someone finds me sexy or they're like attracted to my body a story immediately comes up from my childhood of like oh no something must be wrong with them like that i'm not a sexy person that's not possible it is truly this lie that lives in the driver's seat of my romantic self that I have to work so hard to overcome because I spent so much bandwidth developing these other parts of me while that sexual part remained in its infancy. It remained this insecure high school kid who hates his body and no one looks at him or can't perceive that or the fear of being looked at because it might lead to getting in trouble. 
that thing still it, it that little guy was hidden in the shadows and now he's out moving around in the world and it's taken a long time for me to like allow someone to be attracted to me and i'm getting there right. but it's like it's so funny to think that i'm this adult man living in the world thriving loving my life and i have that wound and can i i mean it sounds like you and i it sounds like you have done as much therapy and thought and journaling. Like I am so the, I'll see an energy healer. I'll see a psychic. <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll do all the therapy. I'll try all the things and, and have spent m- most of my adult life digging into understanding why, and not in a way that's sort of obsessively unpacking, but just in a, oh, I'm noticing this come up and it's sort of time to do some work and, and dive deeper. And we're having this conversation inside of a conference where a lot of women for the first time are considering therapy. Mm-hmm. They're considering that they, that there's some, some things that they need to scratch at and sort of see what's under there. Um, is that something that has always been a part of your life or is that something that you have learned to, um, to lean into because it's so helpful. I would say that it's taken me a while to really like, you know, at my age, like therapy becoming like normalized is relatively new, at least in my experience. Like it was for coastal elites and like New Yorkers and like people with real problems. And if you just like have normal problems, whatever that means, then like going to a therapist almost seemed like admitting that you were in chaos. Whereas now it's, it's becoming to where it's more like working out. It's like, you don't go to the gym once. It's like processing, interrogating in a safe space. Because like, what's so interesting is humans being social creatures. Whenever we're having a conversation, yes, we're having the words of the conversation, but you're always doing a calculation of, okay, if I say this, is Becky going to be mad at me? Can I tell her this? Is she going to tell Susan? Like, okay, so what can I share? Is this too crazy? Am I being an emotional burden on this person? Like I, I constantly tell them about my breakups and like they don't have breakups. So like, is this, a, you're weighing all that while you're talking. Whereas with a therapist, they're getting paid. You can literally be as annoying and honest and wild as you want. And that special relationship is why it has so much value because your brain, your like social navigating brain can relax and then just the truth can happen. And so that has been really, for me, a lot of my therapy came from reading books because a book is someone, there is no social engagement. They're not looking at you. And yet you can be in someone's head, in someone's experience. So it's like, it's so raw and vulnerable. And that's what I wanted to bring with my writing is that I will let you into my head, into the vulnerability. And then you can, you can hate it. I don't, I'm not watching you read my book. I don't even know where you are. You can literally hate this, but somebody might love it. Oh my gosh. I, um, clearly I could talk to you forever (laughs) and I hoped to, I mean, I didn't know you were in LA. I'm in LA all the time. So I'm going to hit you up next time and we hang out for real. Hey, I really appreciate the time today. And I know, I know we went in a bunch of different directions and even (laughs) we talked about going, but I also believe it was the exact conversation we were supposed to have. Mm. So I'm really grateful. I'm so grateful. Will you tell listeners where they can find the books, where they can find you online? Like if they want to connect with you in deeper ways, will you give us all those juicy details? Yeah. So my first book is called To Shake the Sleeping Self. And it's about a bike bicycle ride I did from Oregon to the tip of South America. 
and it's 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 both an external journey and the internal journey of like deconstructing my evangelicalism. So if that interests you, that's the first one. The second one is called Like Streams to the Ocean. It's a collection of essays that are basically this conversation, Rachel. Like it's literally all of this kind of stuff. It's unpacking ego, love, relationships, family, home, career, processing all those things and basically uncover uncovering the cobwebs and seeing who's really behind the driver's seat of your decisions and your motivations. And that's what I really studied there. And then I'm I, you know, I'm a millennial. I'm on Instagram all day. So it's my name, Jedediah Jenkins. And I don't know. I'd love to talk to any. I mean, whoever's at this conference, whoever's listening to this podcast, like if you're into Rachel and into these ideas, then we're probably good friends where we would be. So <laughs> come find me. <laughs> Perfect. Jed, thank you so much for the time, man. Thank I super you. appreciate it. The Rachel Hollis podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is a 3% chance production.